2 Corinthians chapter number 2, 2 Corinthians chapter number 2, as we continue our study in this wonderful book of 2 Corinthians, it's been a blessing and encouragement to me as I've been able to study and have learned and uh, so many good things and been reminded of so many truths and we find them out of, uh, every time we study the Bible, the Bible's full, there are nuggets, you know, you, you read the Bible and isn't it interesting, you can read it. You read the verse over and over again for many years, and all of a sudden you read it afresh for the first time or again, and I'll, it's just there. It just pops off the page at you, and uh, that's, it's a living book, and that's what happens every time we get into the Word of God. Second Corinthians chapter 2. Tonight we'll look at verses 5 through 11 as we continue our look into this book together. But if any have caused grief... He hath not grieved me, but in part, that I may not overcharge you all. Sufficient to such a man is the punishment which was inflicted of many, so that contrarywise you ought rather to forgive him and comfort him, lest perhaps such a one should be swallowed up with overmuch sorrow. Wherefore, I beseech you that you would confirm your love toward him, For it is this also did I write, for to this end also did I write, that I might know the proof of you, whether you be obedient in all things. To whom ye forgive anything, I forgive also. For if I forgave anything, to whom I forgave it, for your sakes forgave I it in the person of Christ. Lest Satan should get an advantage of us, For we are not ignorant of his devices. Here in these verses, we find the word forgiveness six times used. Forgave, forgive, it's used six times in this passage. And forgiveness, as we think about it, and we find it here in this passage, and we'll look at it, but we find it throughout all of the Bible, forgiveness is a core pillar of the gospel. It's a core pillar of the gospel truth. Uh, If there's no forgiveness of our sin, there's no opportunity for heaven. There's no opportunity. There is no salvation without the forgiveness of sin. If forgiveness is ever removed, erased, expunged from the gospel message, then we no longer have a good news gospel, do we? We no longer have good news without this matter of forgiveness. Such an important truth in the Bible. It is foundational to the entire message of the Bible. This idea and this this truth, the, the doctrine of forgiveness. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus Christ, he went to the cross and he died on that cross, was buried the third day and rose again, buried and he rose again that third day and he became the substitute for man's sin, for my sin and for your sin. And our sin was placed upon him. He suffered the pain for our sin that so that he might also take the guilt and take that penalty so that we might have a pardon. That's forgiveness. The pardon of sin. The pardon from our sin. Forgiveness is a marvelous thing. Isn't it good to be forgiven? It's good to be forgiven of someone else when we've wronged them. It's, a, it's like a freeing. It's like a setting free. Boy, it's good to be forgiven by God, to know that we are right with Him. 
It's such an important thing. Webster's describes forgiveness as the act of forgiving is the pardon of an offender by which he is considered and treated as not guilty. You're pardoning an offender where he is considered and treated as not guilty. That's what God certainly does for us. It is in the it was a story I, I read and, and, and I think it fits here in the midst of all the atrocities and the injustices that were committed at the during the Nazi war, the war and the World War II with the Nazis, particularly in the concentration camps of World War II. Uh, if anything could come out of those things, anything imaginable would come good out of that. It would be an, it would be simply it would seem to me like it'd be a miracle. But certainly one thing that was that I read that I think it was interesting with regards to the matter of forgiveness. Something did come out, and it did it was forgiveness at the Ravensbrück concentration camp. I read that there was a note found and a scrap of paper on one of the prisoners, one of the inmates in that prison camp. And the note of the scrap of paper said this, O Lord, remember not only the men and women of goodwill, but also those of ill will. But do not remember all the suffering they have inflicted upon us. Instead, remember the fruits we have borne because of this suffering. Our fellowship, our loyalty to one another, our humility, our courage, our generosity, the greatness of heart that has given, uh, that has grown from all of this trouble. When our persecutors come to be judged by you, let all these fruits that we have borne be their forgiveness. Can you imagine going through a concentration camp and having that concept, having that idea and Pinning those kinds of words with regards to those who had persecuted. And it just is an amazing thing to me. This idea of forgiveness. That forgiveness is really a choice. And really we live in a day that views forgiveness as a, not as a virtue, but as a weakness. If you forgive, you're weak. It's a weakness. Uh, Everything that's around us today, it's all about vengeance, reparations, demanding my rights, pay me what I think you owe me, even if you weren't the one that did the will, even if you weren't living, still pay me something. All this mess that's going on around us, it's built upon the idea of of really pride, but anything but forgiveness. We have a culture today that has, where everybody really is a victim. We've created a victim mentality in America. A victim mentality. Every hardship is the fault of somebody else. Everything that we go through, everything you go through, that's what is being promoted, everything that you've ever dealt with, that you do deal with, it's the fault of someone else. And when you do that, there's no responsibility taken for yourself. You don't have to. You're a victim. A nation of self-proclaimed victims, when that happens, is a nation that 
now feels vindicated to destroy the perceived villain. To go after those who they think has done them wrong. Again, no responsibility of their own, just victims of somebody else's doing. And really, they've boiled it down to a nation of you either a victim or you're a villain. You're one of these two. And all of these things, all of this is opposite of what the Bible teaches. Completely opposite of what the Bible teaches. To a society that demands vengeance, God responds to that and offers forgiveness. Demand vengeance. God says, forgive. Forgiveness is never wrong. It's never wrong. Forgiveness it's, is never weakness. Never wrong to forgive. It's never weak to forgive. Maybe it might even be the tougher thing. The tougher thing to forgive. The stronger. The world needs God's forgiveness. Amen. It certainly does. Even though it does not realize it that it needs it, it needs that forgiveness. Although the world does not seek the forgiveness of God, it needs that forgiveness. We do too. We do too. Forgiveness is a must in our society. We can't go on the way we're going now. It's a must in society for society to operate. And forgiveness is also a must within the church. It's a must within the church. God's people are to be forgiving people, not vengeful people. The goal of any church should be unity within the body. And it's not unity at all costs. And that's the problem that we see so much in evangelical circles and in churches today. It's unity at all costs. Where wrong living and wrong doctrine is overlooked. That's unity at all costs. Well, just ignore it. It, 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 the Bible says it's sin, but we don't want to create a, a wave here. We don't want to disrupt any unity, so just let's just act like it doesn't happen. That's not unity. Unity is not, the Bible does not prescribe that at all costs. He, and so he gives us direction on how to deal with things that are wrong. Overlooking all wrong is not unity, it's compromise. When you just overlook it, Act like it's not there. It's not. It's it's compromise. Biblical unity is when wrongs are done, and the wrongs are realized, repented of, and restoration is made. That's the Bible's prescription. When wrongs are done, they're realized, they're repented of, and restoration is made. How many of us know that offenses come? Have you ever, don't raise your hand, but have you ever been offended? Have you ever been offended in church? Ever had that happen? Offenses come. And we will, even as Christians, I mean, we're, we're going to offend. We'll either offend somebody at some point in time or we'll be offended ourselves. Maybe intentionally, but more than likely unintentionally. Offenses do come. Brothers can't offend brothers. I think, and I look back in my, in my life, I think I've been, if I want to use the word hurt or offended, 
it's probably happened more in the context of a church setting than any other place. Brothers can offend brothers. It does happen. Again, some intentionally, most, I dare say, if not all, are nearly all are unintentional. So what do we do when offenses come? What are we to do with those offenses that will come? The short answer the Bible gives us is this, forgiveness. The short answer is that when offenses come is forgiveness. Paul understood the importance of forgiveness. And in this passage that we read here tonight, he urges the Corinthian church to forgive and restore one that had done wrong within the church. To offer forgiveness and bring them back into the church and restore them. In this particular passage, many scholars, and I happen to agree, they would think that Paul is dealing with the one that he's urging forgiveness to, is dealing with an individual that he had recommended church discipline to back in 1 Corinthians. Paul had recommended that the church practice discipline. If you go with me, hold your place here and go with me to 1 Corinthians chapter number 5. Many would say this is the individual he's talking about here. Offer forgiveness, restore. There was a, a man, a member of the church who was living in open, unconfessed, immorality. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse number 1 and 2. It is reported commonly that there is fornication among you, and such fornication is not so much as named among the Gentiles that one should have his father's wife. And ye are puffed up, and have not rather mourned that he hath done this deed might be taken away from among you. Here in this passage, Paul rebukes not only the man for the immorality, but he rebukes the church for not dealing with it. For not dealing with it. Look down, skip down to verses 9 through 13 of chapter 5. I wrote unto you in a, an epistle, not, in company with, to, uh, not to company with fornicators, yet not altogether with the fornicators of this world or with the covetous or exhorters, excuse me, extortioners, or with idolaters. For then must ye needs go out of the world. But now I have written unto you not to keep company if any man that is, look, called a brother, be a fornicator, or covetous, or an idolater, or a railer, or a drunkard, or an extortioner, with such an one know not to eat. For what have I to do to judge them also that are without, those without the church? Do not ye judge them that are within, those that are within the church. But them that are without, God judgeth. Therefore put away from among you that wicked person. This individual who called himself or was called a brother, he was living in immorality and, and, and Paul saying you need to deal with it. You can't let this go on. You have to deal with it. Church discipline is is something that's found in the Bible. Church discipline is a Bible practice. It's a Bible practice. But not many churches want to follow it. And I say that many, and it ought to be a last resort. Let me say that. But not many want to follow it. Many are scared of this 
thing called church discipline. It ought always to be, again, the last resort. And I think it's primarily gives some instances, reasons for this here. But I, I think that it ought to be dealt with, with, particularly with regards of immorality in the church. It ought to be dealt with particularly with doctrinal issues within the church. And Matthew 18 that we read last week gives us a prescription on how to deal with that. Go to and talk to and try to reason with. The goal of the church, the goal of discipline is the one that's sin. They might recognize their sin. They might repent of their sin and restoration be the end result of that. The goal of church discipline is always restoration. That's the intended purpose of it. And it's to be done in love, not out of vengeance. And as I say again, as a matter of last resort. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, he deals with this matter of discipline. He says, God will judge those that are outside of the church... And the church is to judge those that are within the church. So we're to deal with those issues that come up within the church. Um, This is not not that many what many would think of today. This is not an Amish, Amish type of shunning. It's not that at all. It's not that at all. That kind of thing that we hear of today, and you maybe have seen things, and I've seen documentaries with regards to that, that kind of Amish shunning is based upon legalism. It's unbiblical because it's based upon legalism. When we come to this matter of church discipline, it's not based upon legalism. It's church discipline based upon sin, because of sin. That's the issue that they're dealing with. So in this passage, Paul, or the church rather, after Paul's teaching on it, they follow through on how the Bible says it ought to be done and what the church, how it ought to deal with this kind of thing. So they followed through with it, and we come back to 2 Corinthians chapter number 2, and I believe Paul here is now instructing the church on the next step of what to do. After the sin has been dealt with, What do you do? Where do we go from here? How do we continue to deal with it? Well, it's evident that this man, the evidence is in the scriptures, I believe, this man had repented of his sin. He'd realized he'd been wrong. He'd repented of it. He says out of verse number 6, Sufficient to such a man is this punishment which was inflicted by many. In other words, the church. This church discipline, it had fulfilled its intended goal. There had been the recognition of the sin, the repentance. Now there must be the restoration of the body to bring them back into the fellowship. If there's never, this is the key, if there's never the realization of the sin, and if there's never the repentance of the sin, I believe... I believe, biblically, it's evidence that possibly there's never been salvation. If there's no recognition, if there's no repentance, 
when church discipline takes place. Remember, he says, those who call themselves brothers, and if those things don't take place, there can be no restoration. And if that person just goes off and continues living in that lifestyle, and they just take off in that direction, and you never hear anything from them again, then I believe there's an issue of salvation involved. It was a number of years ago, quite a number of years ago, there were some members of our church, and they were living in outright, open sin. And when it was brought to their attention, and when it was brought up with them with regards to this, that it ought not be, wouldn't even, didn't even get close to fulfilling all Matthew 18, but it was just brought up that it ought not be these individuals left the church and continued living in sin. And as far as I know, never stepped foot in a church again. And have gone deeper and deeper and further away from God. I believe these things are evidences of salvation. Church discipline works within those who are truly born again. And although we may look at it and say, well, how is it going to work? Well, what we do is we do what God says and put it in the hands of God to work out all the details that we can't quite figure out ourselves. And Paul tells us, how do we bring this, this individual back into the church we bring them back by restoration. And what is all that? It's forgiveness. Forgive him. Verse 7 says, forgive him, comfort him. There's several things with regards to forgiveness. And I want to give them to them tonight. And I believe that maybe are helpful. I think we find out of these verses with regards to forgiveness. As we think about forgiveness, what exactly is it and what does it do for us? First of all, forgiveness keeps us humble. Forgiveness keeps us humble. One of the biggest reasons for unforgiveness is pride. When we are not willing to forgive, we are the one that falls into the sin. It's pride upon our part that we withhold forgiveness. Pride can make us bitter, resentful, vengeful, unforgiving. So it keeps us humble. It keeps us from stepping over to sin, uh, from being able for God to bless us. It literally keeps us in a position where we're willing to offer readily and immediately that matter of forgiveness. So it keeps us humble. Number two, forgiveness extends mercy. Verses 6 and 7, sufficient to such a man is his punishment, which was... Inflicted of many, so that contrarywise, you ought rather to, what does he say? To forgive him and to comfort him. Forgiveness extends mercy. How many of us do not need mercy? How many of us are, are to the point where we don't need mercy? We don't need mercy from God. It extends mercy. We are thrilled. We are we are blessed when mercy is extended to us. And therefore, we are to extend mercy to others. Listen to Matthew 18, verses 23 through 25. Matthew 18. Therefore is the kingdom of heaven likened to a certain king, which would take account of his servants. And when he had begun to reckon, one was brought unto him, which owed him 10,000 talents, but for as much as he had not to pay, his Lord commanded him to be sold and his wife and his children and all that he had and 
payment to be made. The servant therefore fell down and worshipped him, saying, Lord, have patience with me and I'll pay thee all. And the Lord of his servant was moved with compassion, loosed him and forgave him the debt. But the same servant went out and found one of his fellow servants, which owed him a hundred pence, just a fraction of what he had owed. And he laid hands on him, and he took him by the throat, saying, Pay me that thou owest. This servant fell down at his feet and besought him, saying, Have patience with me, that I, and I will pay thee all. And he would not, but went and cast him into prison till he should pay the debt. So when his fellow servants saw what was done, they were very sorry and came, unto, came and told unto the, their Lord all that was done. And his Lord, after that he had called him, said unto him, O thou wicked servant, I forgave thee all that debt because thou desirest me. Shouldn't, shouldst uh, not thou also have the same compassion on thy fellow servant, even as I have pity on thee? His Lord was wroth and delivered him to the tormentors till he should pay all that was due unto him. So likewise shall my heavenly Father do also unto you if ye from your hearts forgive not every one his brother their trespasses. The issue here is forgiveness. It's, it's extending mercy. How many of us are so dependent upon the mercy of God that we often don't extend it to somebody else? Forgiveness. It helps keeps us, keeps us humble, keeps our pride in check, extends mercy. Number three, forgiveness produces joy. It produces joy. If we go back to our text and look at verse number seven, the latter part, lest perhaps forgive him and comfort him, and lest perhaps such a one should be swallowed up with overmuch sorrow. What's the opposite of sorrow? It'd be joy, would it not? Forgive him and for comfort him, and comfort him so they didn't get swallowed up in sorrow. So what's the opposite? What's going to happen when forgiveness and comfort is brought? Joy. Forgiveness produces joy. David in Psalm 51 said, Restore unto me the joy of my salvation. Forgiveness produces joy. When the dark clouds of sin clears out, the sunshine comes through. That's the joy that forgiveness provides. Unforgiveness robs joy from both parties. Unforgiveness robs me for not giving it of joy, and it robs the one that we should give it to of the joy as well. There's that conflict that's there. Forgiveness produces joy. It robs us when we don't give it. John 15, 11, all Excuse me, that my joy might remain in you and that your joy might be made full or might be full. So forgiveness produces joy. Number four, forgiveness affirms love. Forgiveness affirms love. Back in our text, wherefore I beseech you that you would confirm your love toward him. When we forgive, we affirm love. It would, you would, sometimes we would think that, that the church discipline aspect of things is done out of anger, out of meanness. It's never to be done that way. It's always to be done in love. But when we forgive, we tell somebody we love them. 
Boy, hadn't God done that for us? What great love that he's shown towards us. The word love here is agape. It's unconditional love. John 13 and 34, a new commandment I give unto you, that you love one another as I have loved you. Think of the love of Christ for us while we were enemies. The enmity of God. While we were enemies against God. And God forgave us even so of our sin. James 2 and 8. The royal law according to the scriptures is this. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. When you do this you do well. James says it's the royal law. Of mankind, of us, between humanity. When we love our neighbors as ourselves, when we forgive, we extend that forgiveness, it affirms our love one for another. And the Bible says you do well when you do it. So it's such an important part. Number five, forgiveness proves obedience. Verse number nine, forgiveness proves obedience. For to this end also I... Uh, did I write, that I might know the proof of you, whether ye be obedient in all things. Forgiveness proves our obedience to God. There was the obedience that was called for back in 1 Corinthians with regards to the church discipline. Now he comes back to this side and he says, there must be the obedience that's also a proof of your love, the the obedience of restoring, continuing the the relationship, the restoration. It's the 70 times 7 principle of forgiveness. The 70 times 7 principle of forgiveness. It proves obedience. 1 John 3 and 14. We know that we have passed from death unto life because we love the brethren. 1 John 3 and 18. My little children, let us not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. Forgiveness proves obedience. And that's what Paul's saying here. Number six, forgiveness restores fellowship. Verse number 10. To whom ye forgive anything, I forgive also. For if I forgave anything to whom I forgave it, notice, for your sakes forgave I it in the person of Christ. Forgiveness restores fellowship. For your sakes. It's for the sake of the unity in the body of Christ. Forgiveness is extended for the sake of the whole. You know, when we have unforgiveness in our church, in our lives, it affects the whole. It affects the whole body. You and I may not know about it with regards to someone else's situation. But it comes in, it dampers the worship. We'll see in just a minute, it, 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 uh, it allows the devil to have uh, free reign in areas that he ought not have. It's for the whole. It's extended so that the whole fellowship might be together and we might have fellowship one with another. Not someone on this side that won't speak to someone on this side. It restores fellowship. Number seven, forgiveness restricts Satan. Verse number 11, lest Satan should, take, should get an advantage of us, for we're not ignorant of his devices. Forgiveness restricts Satan. Just mentioned that. He, unless he get an advantage of us. The lack of forgiveness gives the devil 
the opportunity to have a foothold in our lives. But when we do forgive, it closes the door upon him. He is not able to get that advantage. We're not, we don't fall prey to his lies and to his deceit. The unforgiving spirit plays right into the hands of the devil, his tricks and his lies and all of those things. The unforgiving spirit plays right into the hand of those things. Satan's goal for the church is anything but forgiveness. Anything but restoration. And lastly, I just want to make mention, forgiveness makes us more like Christ and allows us to be used by Him. It's when we forgive that we are the most like Christ and then we're able to be used by Him. We harbor that and we don't extend that. We do not extend the mercy. It keeps us humble. It shows that mercy. It produces joy. It affirms love, it produces or proves obedience, it restores fellowship and restricts Satan and makes us more like Jesus because that's what Jesus does. He forgives. And I, I think Paul is coming to this passage of Scripture and he's, he's reminding this church, this local church at Corinth, now there's been that recognition of sin, there's been that repentance of sin, now make sure there's the restoration So in our lives, the same is true, not just in a church body, but and it is true there, but in our individual lives, forgiveness is such an important factor. And if we don't extend it, if we don't give it, then it does affect everything else and gives the devil that foothold. Let's not allow that to happen. Let's bow our hearts in prayer.